Amen. We're inviting children ages three through first grade to Children's Church, and they'll be dismissed at these doors to your right. We are looking at Ephesians chapter one, if you want to go ahead and turn there. Uh, while, you're, while you're turning there, let me explain. Uh, we are doing a, a series this fall called The Protestant Transformation, and right now we're uh, on really a series within a series talking about what have been called the five points of Calvinism, or uh, you can think of them also as like the five fundamentals of the Protestant Reformation. Um, so we just talked about uh, full atonement. Can it be? Hallelujah. What a savior. Uh, as we think about limited atonement, we also give thought to things like, well, we need to be atoned for because we have sin. And uh, Kyle covered that when he was preaching about our total or our thorough depravity. And that basically means that God loves his enemies. And we talked about how uh, because we were opposed to God, God had to choose us. We wouldn't have chosen him left to ourselves. Unconditional election means that God loves us first, uh, that he takes the first move and uh, creates the initiative for us to have a relationship with him. This morning we're talking about limited atonement, that God loves us personally, not just sort of generally generic love, but really personal individual love. Uh, next week we'll talk about the irresistible grace of the Holy Spirit, how he pursues us and and, and is powerful in his love. Um, and we'll conclude by looking at the perseverance of the saints and how God's love will fully and finally carry us through. He who began that good work in us will, will finish it. Um, we're going to look at this passage in Ephesians uh, here in just a second. I want you to listen for all of the things that God is doing. It's God who's active and that we are being acted upon. Uh, in a sense, we're passive the recipients of God's grace. Uh, so please listen to how God is active. Listen to the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all playing a role in this. And let's stand in honor of God's word as I read verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let me pray for us. Father, we give you thanks for your word. We give you 
thanks that you have revealed the mystery of the gospel to us, that, that Jesus would take our sins on himself, that he would be a substitute for a sinful people, that through him we could have righteousness and acceptance and, and an inheritance, that we might even be adopted and loved by our Heavenly Father. Would you show us the glory of Jesus again today, we pray, for his sake and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Um, so we went, uh, we went pumpkin picking yesterday, as many of you probably have. Uh, and no, we did not go to Food Lion or Kroger to pick our pumpkins. Uh, we, we went to our real, for real pumpkin patch, and, uh, and we were excited. You know, you go there, and there are the wheelbarrows. There are the loppers, you know, to cut your pumpkin right off the vine, fresh and beautiful and big and orange. And we pulled our little trailer through the vines, very brown, very dead actually, very overgrown with weeds and thistles and picked over. And here and there and everywhere are dead pumpkins, pocked pumpkins, rotting pumpkins, and we look around and we can't even find a single whole, even little pumpkin to call our own. We were looking around, it was a pumpkin graveyard. It was pumpkin purgatory. It was awful. It was like, well, it was like the nightmare before Halloween or, I don't know, anyway, something like that. Um, so it got me thinking about purgatory, who knows. Um, but we actually did find a few select pumpkins, and, and, and we're all good. I don't want you to worry for the dailies. We're fine. We've got pumpkins. Um, when the, the, the cover, you see an uh, image from the Uffizi Gallery in Florence, um, and you're going to hear all about my trip and Kathy's trip to Italy. Yeah, just, just be prepared. So we saw this painting. I got to see this. You've seen this image plenty of times probably. I, um, Apparently, there were a number of portraits uh, that Lucas the Elder did um, similar to this, uh, this portrait of Martin Luther, but it's framed together with his wife, Catherine. Um, and, uh, and so I thought this was a fitting image for the bulletin uh, this Sunday. Martin Luther, as, as you are probably aware, if you're just joining us or new to the church or certainly new to any discussion about the Reformation, what's the Reformation? Um, why are we talking about this? Well, we're talking about this because God used a period in, in, uh, in time in history, not just church history, but history history, 500 years ago, uh, to bring some radical changes, good changes, reforms, and transformation uh, to the church, uh, to culture, to individual lives, to families, to how we relate to God. Uh, it was a recovery. It wasn't something new. It was a recovery of what um, Jesus had preached and what the Apostle Paul had preached and what we read in our Bibles when we read about faith alone and Christ alone. Uh, to God's glory alone. Uh, this, is, this is his gift to us. And Martin Luther was rediscovering these things. And on mm, October 31st, 1517, um, 500 years ago this week, Martin Luther chose All Saints' Eve, October 31st is All Saints' Eve, All Hallows' Eve, where we get Halloween from. Uh, he chose All Hallows' Eve to post uh, not on Facebook. Um, back then when they wanted to make a conversation public, they would post it on um, sort of the town square. And the town square was the, the church uh, in Wittenberg, Germany. And on the church door, he posted his 95 theses. Because he wanted people to discuss what are indulgences? What are we talking about when we think about praying 
for the dead uh, on All Saints Day, November 1st, the day after All Hallows' Eve, uh, the church would gather and have a worship service, and they would give thanks for the saints who had gone before them into glory, who were in heaven. And these were the really holy people. Basically, in order to know for certain that you were going to go to heaven, uh, was to die as a martyr for your faith. And so on All Saints' Day, uh, the church would pray for and give thanks uh, for like the superstars, the MVPs who had gone before them and who were really, really faithful and really, really holy. And we knew for sure they were in heaven. If anybody's going to get there, it was them. And then on November 2nd, the church would recognize All Souls Day. And that's when the church would come together and they would pray for the saints who weren't in heaven yet. You know, maybe they're saints. We don't know if they're saints. We sure hope they're saints. Gosh, we hope they're saints. They're in purgatory. And we have to pray them through purgatory, through this purification of their souls so they can be ready to go to heaven. And hopefully, uh, the more we pray, the more we do penance, the more money or indulgences we pay, the faster they can get through this purification, the quicker they'll be done with purgatory, and the sooner they can enjoy the beatific vision and be in glory with the rest of the saints. Uh, so that's, that's the whole thinking behind purgatory. It's a place of purification. It's still the official doctrine of the Catholic Church. In the catechisms of the Catholic Church, Big C, we talk about how we believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church. We're using little c, meaning the church around the world. Big C is the Catholic denomination. And in their catechism, they say that all who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified, are indeed assured of their eternal salvation. But after death, they undergo purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. That's purgatory. The church also commends almsgiving, indulgences, and works of penance undertaken on behalf of the dead in order to get them there sooner, to get them out of purgatory quicker. Um, if you've got a Catholic background, you're going, yeah, okay, I, I get that. I've heard that. Maybe you agree with that. Maybe you don't. Um, if you're haven't heard that? Yeah, that's real. It's a for real thing in the Catholic Church. Um, and I don't know what your, your reaction is to this, but Catholic dogma says that we can pray people out of purgatory and into heaven. Uh, and if you think that's unbiblical, or if you think maybe even that's foolish, maybe you're kind of maybe tempted to feel uh, a little bit of judgment toward that, uh, being critical of that. Before you make any conclusion, I want to just ask and make sure there's your own view biblical. How do you get somebody into heaven? How does somebody get into heaven? How do we experience the afterlife in God's presence? And uh, if you ask most people, even those who say they're Christians, even those who are, I mean, do a, do a, um, a, a you know, quick, candid interview of anybody even leaving the doors of a church after a worship service, and you ask them, how are you getting into heaven when you die? And most of the time you're going to hear something like, oh, gosh, that's a good question. Um, well, I suppose you just you live a good life. Uh, you try really hard. Um, you, you know, you got to give some money to the church. Everybody knows you got to give some money. Um, and I don't, you know, you just try really hard. That's what you're going to hear from most people. Uh, some are going to be a little more, you know, biblically informed about their uh, thing. They're going to say something about Jesus, hopefully. You know, Jesus, yes, he has something to do with this, indeed. Uh, or you're going to just get, even those who aren't in the church, uh, gosh, be a good person, be better than the rest of the, of the people at least. At least, you know, you can know that, well, I'm not as bad as them, so God's obliged to be good to me. 
Uh, and then at the end of the day, everybody sort of believes that um, everybody gets to go to a better place. And so the way to get to the better place is, well, I don't know, you just die. <laughs> everybody goes to a better place, right? And so you got all these different answers. So let's, before we're going to throw stones at any one particular view, do you, do you know if yours is biblical? Do you know if your understanding of the atonement is, is real or right? I mean, what gets us into heaven? Is it our prayers? Is it our penance? Is it our gifts? Is it our goodness? Is it just our funeral? What gets us into heaven? Well, we're looking at this, this passage in, in uh, Ephesians 1, and there's a bunch here, so I'm going to focus on verse 7. Uh, we'll do a little bit of an overview of the whole thing here in just a second. But look at verse 7, where it's Paul saying that in him, in Jesus... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace by which he, which he lavished upon us, right? So his grace is just smothering us, and that grace that smothers us is expressed in this thing called forgiveness, in this thing called redemption. Um, now, what exactly did Jesus do on the cross? What did he do for us? Um, and... Yes, he saved us, or in, in how we talk about his work on the cross, do we, really, do we really think that he saved us, or did he make our salvation possible? Because uh, I, as I listen to people, and as you have conversations with Christians, listen to how they talk about what Jesus did on the cross, and a lot of times what you'll hear is they, they, they sort of view it like a coupon. Um, that what Jesus did for us was he got us a really good deal on heaven, uh, that his redemption is something that we have to redeem. Um, that if I'm going to get in on this deal, I've got to do something to this, and you, know, and you fill in the blank with whatever that something is. Uh, it's a prayer, it's signing a card, it's walking an aisle, it's doing good, it's giving money, it's you know, fill in the blank, etc. Uh, but when they talk about what Jesus did, they speak of his work on the cross as making possible salvation for those who then, you know, kind of redeem the coupon, who, who complete the circuit, who close the loop and finish the deal. That's, that's one way of looking at the cross. Is that a biblical way of looking at the cross? So when you think about the atonement, about the reality of redemption, the reality of forgiveness, is that something real or is it something rhetorical? When Jesus hung on the cross and when he said it is finished, did he mean it is finished or did he mean it is finished with an asterisk? Not quite yet finished. Because what it takes to finish it is for us to finish it. Do we finish it or did Jesus finish it? Is it real or is it rhetorical? Is it a manner of speaking or is it actually something that happened? And so when we talk about the atonement, when the reformers were talking about the atonement, when the Bible talks about the atonement, it sure sounds like it's a real atonement. It sure sounds like what um, Steele and Thomas and Quinn say in their book, The Five Points of Calvinism, that Christ did not simply die to make it possible for God to pardon sinners. Neither does God leave it up to sinners to decide whether or not Christ's work will be effective for them. On the contrary, all for whom Christ sacrificed himself will be saved infallibly. Redemption, therefore, was designed to bring to pass God's purpose of election. How does that sound? Is that biblical? Which is it? Is it real or is it rhetorical? Look again at verse 7. 
In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Um, This redemption that Jesus accomplished, the forgiveness that he accomplished, has a bunch of blood on it. Uh, Don't forget that. The cross is a bloody spectacle. The grace of God, as Neil Planting likes to say, always comes to us with blood on it. It's costly. Uh, It demanded something. It demanded the life of a savior. And our question, the thing that we're wrestling with this morning, is what did that death accomplish? What did the blood of Christ accomplish? When you listen to Hebrews, it sure sounds like it was effective. Uh, The the author of Hebrews says in chapter 10, um, after describing all of the Old Testament sacrifices, tons and tons, thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of sacrifices over time, And all these priests, every day, doing their job, slaughtering animals, sprinkling blood, and at the end of the day, it just never stopped because not one of those sacrifices was sufficient. And in contrast to all of that incomplete, ineffective, sacrificial stuff, the author of Hebrews says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And by the, uh, the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Why did he sit down? He sat down because his work was done. He sat down because he, he didn't have to stand anymore. Job was done. It was finished. It was complete and it was effective. And so you hear this language of the, the blood of Christ and its effectiveness and, and the past tense use of the verbs uh, that we come across. Um, uh, you'll hear the word propitiation sometimes in exchange Uh, for the words like atonement. All of these, uh, when you hear uh, words like these, are all words that were used to describe what is our new relationship with God. For instance, atonement, very, you know, churchy-sounding word, but it's it's kind of simple when you look at it. It means at-one-ment. It's literally where the word came from, used to describe this new status that we have with God because of the redemption and the forgiveness that Christ accomplished through his blood. We are now at one with the one whom we were previously enemies with. We have been, uh, what Jesus accomplished was a propitiation, another big word that when you look at it, well, there's the word, the prefix pro, meaning God, something's going on that's for us, and that God is now propitiated, meaning that he isn't angry about our sin anymore. His anger was just, just as just as your anger is when someone sins against you, God has a right to be angry, uh, especially when we betray him and try to set up our own kingdoms in place of his kingdom. But he's not angry anymore. Why? Well, because there was a propitiation, uh, a sacrifice of atonement that took place on our behalf that accomplished the redemption through Jesus' blood, the forgiveness of our sins. And over and over again, you run into this language. Like in Romans 3, how God put Jesus forward as a propitiation or a sacrifice of atonement by his blood to be received by faith. It happened. Colossians 1, 
uh, that Jesus is the means by which God was making peace by the blood of his cross. And in Ephesians 2, you read about how we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. That blood was accomplishing something. It was effective. It wasn't just um, you know, rhetoric, it was real. And therefore, we, when we look at the atonement, we're talking about something uh, that wasn't just, didn't just make salvation possible, but it actually made it effective. Um, another way that this, this question is posed is by um, Peterson and Williams. They've got a book called Why I Am Not an Arminian. <laughs> Lovely title. Um, anyway, they put it this way. Does Scripture present Christ's substitutionary atonement as potential, making possible the salvation of all, or as effective, securing the salvation of God's people? Does that make sense, that distinction? Which is it? Is it just something that makes it possible for people to be saved? Or is it something that actually saves people? Um, in our passage, here, here's the, the overview um, We've been focusing on verse 7, but go back to verse 3 and sort of the, the beginning half of, of this uh, section, uh, Paul's describing what God, is, God the Father is doing. Uh, that in love, uh, I'm sorry, go back to verse 3, that blessed be the, the God and Father uh, who's blessed us in Christ, that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, that when, uh, when people talk about the, the dynamics of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that when the Bible describes God's activity, it's God who does the choosing, the, the planning, so to speak, the predestining. And then you get to the Son, um, very end of verse 4, verse 5 and following, in love, uh, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus, right? And then in verse 7, in him, in Jesus we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of our trespasses. So there you have the father working in coordination with the son. The father chooses, the son redeems. And then you get down to verse 13, and you see the Holy Spirit's at work as well. And so when you heard of the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And so... The Holy Spirit's role in this is he is sealing us uh, with this guarantee of our future inheritance. It's uh, this binding us to God and, and, and uh, God to us. That's the Holy Spirit's job. All right, so they're all in coordination. They're all working together, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for his glory, for our salvation. Now, let me ask you a question. What if somewhere along the way, uh, one of the persons of the Godhead decided, you know what, I'm not so happy with this plan. I think I want to do a little bit different. I want to go about this a different way. What if, for instance, uh, what if the Father, uh, what, if, what if the Son, let me begin with this, what if the Son and the Spirit agreed uh, to redeem and to seal a certain number? Jesus would redeem some uh, and the, the Holy Spirit would seal them. But the Father had insisted all along that everybody would be chosen. You know, we're not singling out anybody. Just, it's comprehensive, it's universal. Everybody's going to be chosen, but the, the Son says, no, I'm only going to redeem these people. And then the Holy Spirit says, I'm, I'm in with the Son. We're only going to seal these people too. And so they're kind of pitted against each other. Or, second scenario, what if the Father and the Son agreed 
Father agreed to choose the elect. The Son agreed to redeem those elect. But the Holy Spirit held out and insisted, no, I don't like that. I'm going to seal universally everybody for this inheritance. And, uh, and they're you know, at odds over who is sealed and who gets the inheritance. Third scenario, just kind of walking this out. What if the Father and the Spirit agreed? Father and the Spirit agreed to choose, to elect, and to seal a certain number. But instead, Jesus held out and said, no, I don't like that plan. I'm going to redeem everybody. I'm going to forgive the sins universally of everybody. Would that make sense, right? So all along the way, you just kind of go, that's... That doesn't sound very coordinated. That sounds like they're in conflict, and that doesn't sound like the Holy Trinity to me. Well, um, it's actually that third scenario that most Christians default to. Did you catch that? That God, sure, I see the word predestination in Ephesians 1. He chooses, and the Holy Spirit, you know, seals them for their day of redemption. But Jesus, no, Jesus died for everybody. Jesus saved everybody, and, uh, and it's up to us to, to kind of cash in on that salvation, to redeem that redemption, right? That's the default mode of a lot of Christian speak. I don't know if they really believe that, but that's kind of how we talk. And I'm saying that's not how the Bible talks. That's not what it sounds like in, in Ephesians 1. So this, this third scenario is, you know, popular among sort of the conventional view of most Christians. And instead, we're arguing for something much more particular, uh, much more individual, much more personal, rather than just sort of this general universal salvation that Jesus accomplished. Instead, we're saying that, no, Jesus died for his sheep. Jesus knew exactly who he was laying down his life for. He knew exactly who his blood was going to redeem. That God loves us personally, not just generally. That we're talking about a, a, a particular kind of atonement that is limited to God's elect. Not, you know, uh, Jesus didn't, in a sense, die for the whole world to be saved. He died so that God's people would be saved. A new nation, a new humanity. So, all that to say, when we look at atonement, redemption, forgiveness, what we're saying is that something happened to you. Something happened to you. Something outside of you. Something's been done for you. Something's been accomplished on your behalf. We don't vote on it. We don't approve it. We don't redeem it. Uh, It's not a democracy. This isn't the American way. It's happened to you sovereignly. And the good news is that it's done and it's finished, it's effective and it's accomplished and you are saved by Jesus. It's done. He does, God doesn't make salvation possible for sinners, he saves sinners. And I know this raises questions such as, well, what about the invitation to believe the gospel? Good question. You should be asking that question. And we're going to answer that question, just not today. You've got to come back next week. It's my unsolicited, you know, invitation. Come back next week. It's a good question. It has to be wrestled with. And we're going to touch on it here at the end, so, so sit tight. But what about that universal call? Uh, what is, what's, what's going on with that? And what about people who walk away from the faith and reject the gospel after, you know, it seemed like they were Christians. Now they're walking away. Were they saved or not? You know, again, we're going to talk about the, the call of the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, what is going on with this irresistible call? Uh, so some people, their reaction is simply, well, it doesn't sound fair, um, and that's, that's a response. Kind of 
comes from our default posture of, hey, everything in our lives should be fair, and you know, we're a democracy, and we appreciate fairness, and I get that. But, all right, let's follow that one up. Um, it's not fair for Jesus to only die for the elect. He should be dying for everybody. Who are we to make that demand? Just, just, I get where it comes from, but just sit tight and ask yourself, who am I to, to make that demand, to have that expectation that Jesus would redeem and forgive every single person everywhere? If this is really a conversation about fairness, then let me ask you, what does fairness require? What would, what would be the fair thing for God to do? The fair thing, the just thing for God to do is to hold me and you and all of us, the whole world, accountable for our sins. That's the fair thing. That's the sober thing. That's the thing we don't want to acknowledge, but it's true. You want to hold other people accountable who sin against you, right? There's, there's that deep sense of fairness, justice. People need to be held accountable for what they do. When they know they do something wrong, they, they, should, they should answer for that, especially when it hurts other people, especially when it destroys relationships. We're justified in feeling that, isn't God? Where does that sense come from in us? It comes from God. So if you want fairness, be careful. Be careful what you demand. Be careful what you expect. But if you're asking and wondering about fairness, then I've got good news for you. Actually, you know, you're, you're, you're very biblical. Uh, because that same, um, that, that same reaction is what Paul anticipates in Romans. And he's calling out those who've cut their hands up in the back, you know, that, you know, yes, you in the back. That doesn't sound fair. And Paul says, you're right. Because it's not about fairness. It's about mercy. In, in Romans 9, uh, he says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is God fair? He says, by no means, for I will have, God will have mercy on whom we will have mercy. And then in, again, later on in that same chapter, you will say to me then, well, why does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? He's a sovereign God, and I'm just a puppet, right? And Paul says, no, you're not. No, you're not. But there's a mystery here, and it's bigger than us. Let God be God. You be accountable. You are responsible, but let God be God. And then lastly, when you think about fairness, well, if you're going to insist on fairness and if you're going to insist, let's just do the what if. What if Jesus actually did die for every single person everywhere, you know, and it's really about our redeeming his redemption, then really what you have is just sort of this general, generic, sentimental love for everyone everywhere. Is that the kind of love that the Bible describes that God has for, for sinners? Or instead, does the Bible describe a special, uh, a personal, a, a passionate, a particular, as Chesterton described it, a furious love of God that will let nothing stand in the way of him coming to love and redeem and rescue his bride and they will live happily ever after? Which kind of love is it in the Bible? Which kind of love would you actually like to receive? Well, belief in the gospel, receiving the invitation of the gospel, repenting and trusting in Jesus, all of that, instead of us 
redeeming the redemption, what if we looked at it this way? What if instead it was more like just kind of waking up to what's been done for us? I read a book um, called Waking Up White. It was really uh, an interesting discussion about race in, in, uh, in our culture. And so this woman um, who's writing this sort of as an autobi- autobiography, um, but in the, the context and discussion of race, uh, she grew up in, uh, in Massachusetts, in the uh, New England, and never considered herself a racist, you know, never considered herself allied with uh, those who were, you know, those bigots and those people who were um, saying all kinds of nasty things and being prejudiced. She thought, oh, I, I love black people, you know, I don't have black friends and so on. But, but it wasn't until later on in her life that she started to wake up to her whiteness, as she described it. And her husband, on the back of the book, writes, you know, his endorsement, couldn't have happened to a whiter person. So nice. <laughs> it's great. And what, basically what she says is this, that um, I thought that white was the raceless race. Like, she's going, okay, I'm white, and I'll, I'll put down what race, you know, on your medical form or your, um, you know, personal inventory. Uh, what, what is your race? I'm white, you know. But I thought white was the raceless race, just plain normal, the one against which all others are measured. That's how she viewed whiteness. That's how most of us view whiteness, by the way. But So she's waking up to this thing that she hadn't really seen in herself, this way of thinking that she hadn't identified and now was realizing, hey, that's wrong. Well, <laughs> isn't that what faith is? It's just kind of waking up to what God's done for us. And all along we've been thinking that, you know, I've done a favor for God by saying yes to Jesus. And isn't he glad to have me? Isn't he lucky to have me? No, 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 no. Come on, think about it. What pictures did Jesus give us? He gave us the picture of uh, a, a, a shepherd who was just not going to stop until he gets that lost sheep and, and passionately pursues that one lost sheep and brings it home effectively, brings that sheep home. Or this woman who, you know, is not going to stop sweeping until she recovers her lost coin. She's going to finish what she started. And then Jesus saves the best for last, and he talks about this father who is uh, waiting for his son to come home. The son, the prodigal, uh, the profligate son, better description, comes home. And what does the son expect? The son is expecting, at best, uh, to be given a place among the servants. He knows he's got to pay. He doesn't even deserve to be called a son anymore. He knows this is what justice looks like. But what does he experience? That's not his experience. He comes home to forgiveness. It's already happened. He was already forgiven, and he doesn't have to beg for a place among the servants. Instead, he's brought into the banquet hall. He's brought in and given a seat right by his father, and they have a party. And it's beautiful, and it's wonderful, and it's good. This is the picture that God gives us. This is the wonder of the gospel, that God's known your name all along. He singled you out. You had nothing to do with it. But Isaiah tells us that I've known you by name. You are mine. John 10, Jesus says that the good shepherd calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And this transforms us. When you get this, when this starts to connect the dots in your heart and in your mind and your soul, you start going, wait a minute, this isn't about me anymore. It's about him and his love for me and how he's pursued me and bought me and redeemed me and forgiven me. And this begins to make you realize I'm not my own. I'm not in charge here. I'm not in control. I'm, I'm along for this ride. And he's loved me. And I get the sheer grace and beauty of these blessings 
without anything I've done to earn them. But it has implications for us. It means that you're not your own. You and I were bought at a price. Paul fleshes out some of these implications in 1 Corinthians 6, and it's got some surprising application. When he says that you are not your own, you were bought at a price, he says, so glorify God in your body, and he's talking about sexual immorality. He's talking about the proper place for sex and the improper place for sex. So wouldn't you know it, our discussion on atonement actually has a lot to do with sex. It's okay. I'm trying to lighten this mood a little bit. It actually does, because guess what? The one who bought you, who, who purchased you, who redeemed you, he does, you do belong to him. You do belong to him. You don't get to call the shots. You don't get to make up the rules. Not if you're his. Not if you're his. So glorify God in your body. Pursue what's beautiful and good and noble and praiseworthy and, you know, let's stop flirting with filth. This has to do with in the next chapter, Paul says, you were bought at a price, so do not become bondservants of men. Meaning, look, you belong to somebody else. Don't give your soul to another person, a boss, a spouse, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, to grades, to academics, to your job, to your car, to your, you know, whatever it is that's controlling you, that is your functional God, as Martin Luther used to say. So don't do that. You were bought at a price. You belong to your true and proper Lord who loves you. Keep him as first in your heart. And lastly, let's talk about what it means to live a life of at-one-ment. If we've been atoned for, what does it mean to live a life of, of at-one-ment? We can live a life of at-one-ment theologically and then relationally. Let, let me talk about theologically real quick. So Christians struggle with what we're covering in the sermon series, right? The sovereignty of God, human responsibility, the sovereignty of God and predestination and our total depravity and limited atonement and, and, you know, people just sort of want to write that off. They feel like they must sacrifice their human responsibility if they're to say yes to God's sovereignty, and they don't want to do that. So there's one group of Christians who are kind of in that camp. There's another group of Christians who, who really are excited and enthusiastic about God's sovereignty, uh, but they look at the five points of, you know, Calvinism or our five points of the Reformation, and they go... Um, well, I'm, I get our sinfulness, and I get election, and I get even, you know, the irresistible grace and perseverance of the saints, but I think Jesus was, his, his death was general, and they call themselves four-point Calvinists. And, and so my point here is, is good news for both groups. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a bone to, to both of those categories, because I think both groups are probably here represented in some way, shape, or another. Um, and that's, that's, um, that's my good news, is that I'm actually a six-point Calvinist. <laughs> Let me put it this way. What's better than, a, than one tulip than, than many tulips? Let me, let me get this slide, Caleb. Let me show you what I'm talking about. You and I have got to stop pitting God's sovereignty against human responsibility and acknowledge that there's a sacred mystery going on here. And when we have these discussions, apart from any acknowledgement that, there's, that we're not going to be able to reconcile the truth of God's sovereignty and my responsibility. I can't reconcile it, but I have to validate both if I'm going to be biblical. Because both are very clearly expressed in Scripture. God is a great and glorious king. And he's also a very fair judge. And I have to bow to his rule in my life, and I am accountable for my decisions. 
So we don't have to pit these against one another, but we do have to validate both, sadly, uh, what's happened you know, in the course of church history in the past 500 years, for instance. You know, even the reformers were starting to, to battle internally over you know, well, how sovereign is God, and you know, everybody's trying to discuss God's sovereignty in opposition to human responsibility, and these, were seen, these seem mutually exclusive. We can't reconcile them. Pelagius couldn't reconcile them. Arminius couldn't reconcile them. And some of the reformers were overcompensating. And their enthusiasm and their emphasis on God's sovereignty, sometimes they came across like the frozen chosen, is how we describe it. Oh, it's all about God's sovereignty. It almost seems like it doesn't have anything to do with what we do. And they were failing to validate both biblical truths. And we still make this mistake today. Um, We're marginalizing and alienating brothers and sisters who are eager to affirm our responsibility to believe, to repent, to pray, to evangelize, to do missions, to give, to show mercy, all these things. We can't just sit back and say, well, God's sovereign. He'll take care of it. That's fatalism. That's not Christianity. So why not have tulips? And have this conversation whether we're talking about God's sovereignty and we have to acknowledge as a mystery and how human responsibility factors in. Or if we're going to have a heavy conversation about what does it look like for us to be accountable and responsible, let's embrace the mystery of, hey, by the way, don't forget God's sovereign. And hopefully we can experience a little more at one in the body of Christ. And what about the body of Christ in our friendships, in our marriages, in our parenting, in our workplaces, as you're dealing with other Christians, why is it so hard for us to get along? If you and I have been redeemed, if we've been forgiven, if, if, if we've experienced the atonement, why is it so hard for us to experience at one with other believers? Two believers who both say that Jesus died for my sins and he forgave me. Why is it so hard for us to forgive each other? Maybe we're not really experiencing the reality of the atonement like we say we are. As much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people, Romans 12. Colossians 3, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Who are you having a hard time forgiving? Who are you blocking out? Who are you writing off? Why do you hold on to the past? And if God's forgiven you, can you forgive your brother? Can you forgive your sister? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the atonement. Thank you for the good news that you loved us personally, that you passionately pursued us in our sin, even when we were dead in our trespasses. You gave your life, you shed your blood so that atonement might be accomplished, so that atonement might be realized. Would you help us to embrace this glorious truth rather than be skeptical of it or feel like it's mutually exclusive and that we have to give up our responsibility. Lord, help us to embrace the mystery of your goodness and your glory and our responsibility. Help us to worship you as a response and help us to experience and reflect at one with our brothers and sisters theologically and relationally in our marriages and in our parenting and in our friendships and at work and everywhere. Would you get great glory in your people and would you help all of us to continue to call on Jesus 
the one who has brought us near, who has brought us into your house, into your banqueting table, where we can feast with you forever. In his name we pray.